Good morning. morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are in such need of your mercy and your love and your wisdom and your presence. We ask that you'll join us today. We see the events transpiring in the world and we we hear the rumblings of the enemy and we know that uh, time is short. We ask that you will prepare our hearts and minds and use us as your witnesses for the millions out there who who are grappling with uncertainties and fears that they need the hope of Jesus and we pray that we can be effective in sharing. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson two in the quarterly Genesis, and the title is The Fall, and the memory text is Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And I, I think this is wonderful they start with this text in this week's lesson, because I think this, perhaps, is the most important text in Scripture. It's the promise given right at the fall of a Savior. And it is the landscape of the entire Old Testament revolves around this text. Understand that the the focus of Scripture is the plan of salvation. This is why in the Old Testament and Scripture we're not focusing on the Eskimos or the or the Mayans or the or the Aboriginal peoples in Australia. It's not because God doesn't love them, He loves everyone. But the plan of salvation was not coming through those families. The plan of salvation focuses on the avenue through which Messiah comes, which is not all of Abraham's children. We don't focus on Esau's descendants or or Ishmael's descendants. We focus on Jacob's descendants. And eventually we narrow down to the tribe of Judah because ten tribes get assimilated. And, And the entire focus is on the coming Messiah. And when you understand that focus, then you understand the landscape of what's happening in the Old Testament. Uh, As soon as God makes his promise, Satan begins working to obstruct it. We've got to stop it. This is what's happening. How could he possibly stop it? And this gives us insight into the first six chapters. Right there, Genesis 6, comes the flood. Why is the flood coming? Because this promised Messiah has been made. Satan is working to stop Messiah. And if how can he stop Messiah? Well, is God going to have Jesus born to a woman like Jezebel? Is he going to force a woman against her will to be the mother of Jesus? So if Satan get every human heart to harden against God and not cooperate, the avenue's closed. At the time of the flood, the Bible tells us there was one righteous man left on the earth. Think it through. The entire planet is now hardened except one. And God intervenes. What's the purpose of the intervention for the flood? Not an infliction of punishment. It is a therapeutic judgment. I judge that if I don't take an action, I lose the entire human race. So I make a judgment that a cancer needs to be excised, and I put the world into sleep, basically, the the sleep mode death, not the eternal death of all the people, except those who get on there. But I'll give them all a chance. Get on the ark. You don't have to die in the flood. You don't have to go to sleep right now. But the purpose was to keep open avenue for Messiah. And then this is also why you see the earth changing, shortening the lifespan, so that the evil people's influence would be reduced and they couldn't unite again in a global coalition against God, at least not until the final global coalition right before Christ returns. And this is why, uh, confusing the languages, they tried to organize again and build their power, but he confuses the languages and I believe created the different uh, races of, of, of human beings at that point to divide that so we would not unite in a rebellion against him again to make it harder for Satan's lies to, to spread through the human experience to keep open Avenue for Messiah. This is what's going on in the Old Testament, probably the most important text. First paragraph, it says, Amid all that God had given our first parents in Eden also came a warning. Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you will surely die. This warning against eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil shows us that though they were to know good, they were not to know evil. What do you think about this idea? They were to know good, they were not to know evil. Didn't God inform them about evil? Didn't he say in the day you eat you will die? Isn't death part of evil, not part of good? I think maybe experience evil. 
know evil intimately. Yes, 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 yes. So, so this is an important thing you guys are, are, are highlighting here. You're exactly right. And it's important we recognize that through Scripture. This is not cognitive awareness. This is not factual information. God sent angels, and he came himself to inform them about the rebellion, to tell them about the, the dangers of what evil is. But knowing in Scripture is an intimacy. It's an experiential knowing. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she... This is life eternal. They might... No. no not know about. No. So... The scriptures tell us that God's angels are his ministering or minister to us. And based on that insight, some uh, Christian authors have understood that God also sent his angels to visit Adam and Eve and to help educate them. And we read a little about that in a book called The Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 32. Let me share you these insights, see what you think. God assembled the angelic host to take measures to avert a threatened evil. The threatened evil was Satan, his rebellion, seeking to get Adam and Eve to rebel. That's the threatened evil. It was decided in heaven, in heaven's council for angels to visit Eden and warn Adam that he was in danger from the foe. Two angels sped on their way to visit our first parents. The holy pair received them with joyful innocence, expressing their gratitude and gratefulness uh, to their creator for, this, for thus surrounding them with such profusion of his bounty. Everything lovely and attractive was theirs to enjoy, and everything seemed wisely adapted to their wants. And that which they prized above all other blessings was the society of the Son of God and the heavenly angels. For they had much to relate to them at every visit of their new discoveries and the beauties of nature of their lovely Eden home. And they had many questions to ask relative to the things that they could not but indistinctly comprehend. The angels graciously and lovingly gave them information they desired. They also gave them the sad history of Satan's rebellion and fall. That they then distinctly informed them that the tree of knowledge was placed in the garden to be a pledge of their obedience and love to God. That the high and happy estate that the holy angels uh, was to be re retained upon condition of obedience. That they were similarly situated. That they could obey the law of God and be inexpressibly happy or disobey and lose their high state and be plunged into hopeless despair. Pause. There's one more paragraph I'm going to read here. I would encourage you, if you have access to the uh, first Spirit of Prophecy, um, Volume 1, uh, go, go and read this entire section. It's powerful. It's amazing the, uh, what is described here. But right here, they could obey the law of God and be inexpressibly happy. Where does happiness come from? Say it, say it. Health. Health. Healthiness. Happiness is a byproduct of healthiness in all domains. When you're unhealthy physically, your happiness is reduced. When you're unhealthy relationally, you're going through a divorce, your kids won't talk to you, your happiness is reduced. When you're unhealthy spiritually, you're under conviction of guilt, shame, your happiness is reduced. When you're unhealthy um, mentally, cog uh, psychologically, I'm no good, everybody hates me, I can't do anything right, uh, you're not happy. Happiness is a byproduct of healthiness, and it cannot be pursued directly. If you pursue happiness directly, you end up substituting pleasure-seeking for happiness. And this is what you see in the world. People want to be happy, but they end up pursuing pleasure, something to make them feel good. The only way to get happiness is to be healthy, and the only way to be healthy is to live in harmony with the laws of health, which are God's design laws for life. Thus, they could choose obedience to the laws upon which life were built, and they would have happiness, because they would be healthy in all domains. Or they could disobey, and if they disobey, they break the laws upon which life is built. They introduce a new antagonistic principle the Bible describes as the law of sin and death, which we would describe as the principles of survival of the fittest, fear and self-centeredness. And happiness is gone, and they have instead hopelessness and despair. Next paragraph. I just want to point out, this is just describing how reality works. This is what, what's what happens. Next, next paragraph. They told Adam and Eve, the angels told Adam and Eve, that God would not compel them to obey. That he had not removed from them power to go contrary to his will. That they were moral agents, free to obey or disobey. But certainly, it would have been appropriate to put some type of mandate on them to 
preserve and protect life, right? No, they were free. They, there was one, but one prohibition that God sent to see fit to lay upon them. If they should transgress the will of God, they would surely die. They told Adam and Eve that the most exalted angel next to Christ in order refused obedience to the law of God, which he had ordained to govern heavenly beings, that this rebellion had caused war in heaven, which resulted in the rebellious being expelled therefrom. And every angel was driven out of heaven who united with him in questioning the authority of the, of the great Jehovah, and that the fallen foe was now an enemy to all that concerned the interests of God and his dear son. So, if they were not to know evil... Why did God and the angels educate them about the rebellion of evil? Well, you guys have said it, because it's not about knowing about. It's about knowing through experience. There's a difference between knowing about swimming and knowing how to swim. They're not the same thing. There's a difference between knowing about President Biden and knowing President Biden. They're not the same thing. Okay? So the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not the place of theoretical knowledge, cognitive knowledge, academic knowledge. It was the place that they would choose to know in their being, in their being. They would choose to know good or evil in their being. So God said to them, it is a tree basically you're saying this is my, my kind of description, not the words that he used, uh, we have. It, it, it is that this tree you will have knowledge, so choose well. Choose to trust me and not partake the fruit, and you will know good. You will know love. You will know loyalty, trust, devotion, maturity, integrity, joy, peace, godliness, and happiness. This is what you'll know. You'll know it. You'll experience it. You'll live it. All of this will solidify in your character. So please, my beautiful children, choose to know good. But if you choose to believe the lies, if you distrust me, if you take the fruit, you will know evil, you will know fear, selfishness, insecurity, guilt, shame, distrust, pain, suffering, and death. So please, my beautiful children, choose to know good. This is what was happening. God already knew evil, not in his character, but in his heart, as he knew the pain of the fractured home in heaven, of the loss of his beautiful angelic children, of the, of the ugly things that were said about him, and the misrepresentations and the lies being told, of the hurt in the, in the angelic host. Imagine that you were God, and, and the split in his family. How many angels do you think were coming to him with broken hearts that their close friends had, had, been, had been left heaven and driven out? God did not want humankind to know this kind of pain, this heartache. He wanted us, he wanted Adam and Eve to choose the good and know it for themselves. So God warned them, place a tree there for their development. Understand, the tree was not there placed to tempt them to fall. It was their opportunity to excel, to advance, to develop. So listen to this quotation out of Conflict and Courage, page 13. God might have created man without the power to transgress his law. He might have withheld the hand of Adam from touching the forbidden fruit. But in that case, man would have been not a free moral agent, but an automaton. That's an old word for robot. A robot. Without freedom of choice, his obedience would not have been voluntary, but forced. There could have been no development of character. It would have been unworthy of man as an intelligent being and would have sustained Satan's charge of God's arbitrary rule. Understand, the tree was not there for them to fall. It was there for them to succeed and excel, but it was their choice. Third paragraph. And two, the threat of death attached to the warning about disobedience would be fulfilled. They would die. Not only forbidden to eat from the tree, they were driven out from the Garden of Eden and thus had no access to what would have given them eternal life as sinners. What type of threat is this? And what's the question we always recommend you ask? What law lens are you looking through? If you assume God's law works like human law, a system of rules that are made up that require judicial and administrative oversight and enforcement of punishment, that's how human law works, then you read this as most of Christianity teaches. 
God would be required by holiness, by righteousness, by the immutability of his law to execute them. God said, in the day you eat thereof, I will be required by my holiness to kill you for your disobedience and rebellion. You understand most of Christianity teaches that that's what it says? Does it actually say that? It doesn't say that at all. But that's because they assume God's law works like human law. Lots of ways you can expose the fallacy of this from various other scripture texts that talk about the wages of sin being death. You can ask questions. So you're saying, if that's true, that if God could simply restrain himself, that sinners could live forever in sin because sin doesn't actually harm. Only God harms you for it. See, that, that, the people don't like that when you put it that way. But if you look through the design law, God is saying, if you, if you, the day you eat of this fruit, you're stepping out of harmony with the protocols upon which I have built life to operate. And you will decay and die. The Hebrew there, in the day you eat, you will surely die. There's two words there. And the words are dying, die. <laughs> dying, die. You will surely dying, die. Or you will dying, die. That's what it means, not surely. You will dying, die. What's that mean? You're out of harmony with me. You'll cut yourself off from the... Um, the uh, life energy source that comes from me, and you will decay and die. There's no life outside of my design and relationship with me. It would be like saying to your child, in the day you jump off the Empire State Building, you will surely die. Falling, you will fall. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when they jump, do they instantly die? There's actually a little bit of time that goes by. Very little from our perspective. It's very quick. A few seconds. I don't know what. How, I don't know how many seconds it takes you to fall down there, but less than a minute, and then you're dead. Well, from God's perspective, I mean, just, just think about this as far as time, time goes. We have a rope that is reaches from Earth to the sun, 93 million miles long. And on that rope, every inch represents one year of life. And Methuselah lived 969 years, 969 inches, and we might live 85, 100 inches. From God's perspective, and 93 million miles, is there a significant difference there? And 93 million miles is not eternity. From God's perspective, from the time they ate to the time they died, how quick was it? It was very quick. Blink of an eye. Blink of an eye. Yes. This is very quick. It wasn't instant, but it was quick. Does it make a difference how we understand the warning? If we understand it through human law, God's saying, if you eat, I will be required by law to enforce a penalty upon you and execute you for your crime. Versus if you eat, you take yourself out of harmony with me and my protocols for life, and you will surely die. You'll decay and die. Does it make a difference how we hear the warning? Does it make a difference in how we see God? It, it, does it make our difference in ability to trust God? This is the key. This is the root to Satan's life in the beginning. If we believe the imperial law of you, the human law of you, we actually can't trust God, and therefore, in order to feel safe, what do we have to do? If we take that view, and this is what all Christianity has done, and all the pagan religions have done, including pagan Christianity, you understand there is a pagan Christianity, right? And what's the core to pagan Christianity, pagan paganism? That God is, is the source of the inflicted pain and suffering, and therefore something needs to be offered to the God. Appeasement, Appeasement payment, propitiation, expiation, something to turn away the wrath, something to, to pay the price so that God won't kill us. And so most Christian theologies have a theology that is designed to hide us and protect us from God. That's what it's designed to do. It's all uh, dressed up in nice, pretty little Christmas wrapping. We put all this nice little, little flowers and things on the outside of cyanide and put good for your health on the label. When you take the cyanide, is it good for your health? Okay? This is much of Christian theology. It's all wrapped up in the statements of it's because he loved you. But if you actually look at the teachings, here are the teachings. 
I presented this idea at uh, an evangelical group some years ago, and I put the idea, do you know most Christian theologies have this idea that, that, uh, that, that we have to hide ourselves or protect ourselves from God? And the audience was shaking their head, no. No, no, none of us believe that. Oh, so none of you ever have anything like, well, Jesus stands between us and the Father and pleads his blood to the Father on our behalf. We're covered with a robe of righteousness. When the Father looks at us, he can't see our wickedness. Our sins record in the book of heaven. Uh, if we ask Jesus and confess our sins, he puts his blood upon the record and erases the record. So when the Father looks at the record, he doesn't see our sin. We don't teach anything like that, do we? Notice what they're all designed to do. And there's many more. The way they're taught, and some of these metaphors are from Scripture, and they're beautiful when you put them back in design law. They're brilliant. But under imposed law, they actually teach an idea that you can't trust God. You have to be protected from him. It's all corrupt. It's all pagan. It's not true. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. If God, um, if God is for us, who can be against us? For God's over the world that he sent his only begotten Son. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I. The scripture is very clear. God did not need anyone. And if you believe Jesus is God, who stood between Jesus and Judas when Jesus was washing his feet? Somebody had to plead with Jesus to do that. No, that's God. Who stood between God and his crucifiers when he said, Father, forgive them? I mean, this is the reality. This is design law. So it makes a huge difference how we see this warning as a warning of love to protect them from taking an action that would destroy them or a threat that I'd be forced by law to uh, you know, kill you for, for what you've done. It makes a huge difference. Uh, Sunday's lesson is about the serpent. And who is the one that's speaking through the serpent? Of course, it's Satan. And he gives us a couple of texts in the, scripture, uh, in the lesson, Isaiah 27.1, which reads, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. Comforting? Yes. Or do, yes, it is. Or do you do you think through the lens of Scripture and remember? Put the put the pieces together. This this slaying is being done by Christ, and hopefully you you jump into Revelation, Revelation chapter um, nineteen, right? Thank you. Where uh, the white the rider on the white horse comes to destroy with a sword that's coming. Out of his mouth. Out of his mouth? A piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? No. And what does the scripture say about the word of God? Two-edged sword. It's a two-edged sword. Okay? And so what does Christ always speak? I am the way, the truth. This is the word of truth that slays the lies and the falsehood. And in Revelation 19, it calls the wider the word. His name is the word of God. His name is the Word of God. So it is the truth that destroys the lies. And ultimately, we've talked about this before, when Christ returns, ultimately his life-giving glory, the fires of truth and love, infinite truth and love, flow out. We live in it, the righteous do. But those who have to lie to themselves to avoid the guilt and the shame, tell themselves, it wasn't my fault, it was the woman you gave me. No, I didn't do anything wrong, it was them, they just don't like me. Okay, those who live in denial, you can't live in denial when you're being bathed in infinite truth. Your lies don't work anymore. It, the truth burns through and you have awareness of all the evil that you've caused, that you've not repented from, that you prefer, and it causes a, a terrible weeping and agony. This is what's happening. So this is uh, how he slays the liar in the end. Yes? How about the opening scripture that you mentioned with he shall bruise... Uh, his Christ's heel and Christ would bruise the serpent's head? Yes. That's the, the serpent's ideas, his thoughts, his, his um, teachings. I, 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 yes, well said. So he crushes his head, not bruises. He crushes the head. And we see that in Hebrews 2.14. He, um, let's see. Uh, he took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. The devil holds the power of death. 
Christ destroys him by his death. Well, what's life eternal? That you you might know God and Jesus Christ. So eternal life equals knowing God, that intimate relationship with. Then the power of death is? Death is not knowing God. And the power that gets us not to know him is? Satan is the father of? Lies about, ultimately, God. And as we war, yeah, God and his law, which is all rooted together, we war against um, We don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we use are not the weapons of the world. We have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So you're exactly right, but Christ's death crushed the lies about God. We see the truth of God's character. We see that he is loving and self-sacrificial, and he won't use power to force people to do what he says, even if it means protecting innocent life. For himself. For himself. And the veil was rent, so now we can see what God is really like. In Jesus Christ. That's right. So this is how he crushed him. Well said. And then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The, the, the word war here, by the way, is polemo. From where we get polemic. It's a polemic war. A war of words, a war of ideas, a war of arguments. It's not a physical battle. It was a war over lies versus truth. Okay? The great dragon hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray was hurled down. He leads us astray through his false theories and lies. And not just us, but Ellen White talks about how he convinced so many angels to follow him. Some of them were kind of wavering. And he told them it was too late for them. And it wasn't too late for them. It was too late for him. He had already solidified in evil. But they hadn't, but he lied to them and said, well, you've come this far, it's, it's too late, he won't accept you back. So, I mean, that's a, that's a lie he also tells us, that we tend to believe. Well, we've, we've sinned too much, we've gone too far, God won't accept us. But that's not true. No, this will said. Ellen White does describe that process of him telling additional lies to them. It's very interesting. If you go read the article that I referenced earlier, read it in length, uh, she describes later how, uh, maybe I'll bring this up next week, yeah, maybe I'll bring it in next week. Um, but how he was uh, uh, dissatisfied and uh, with his new position out of heaven and the consequences of his choices. And he was um, unhappy, uh, grieving, uh, longing for his uh, the happiness he used to have in heaven. She describes the, the same negative cascades that happened in the heart and mind were happening. He didn't like how he felt. He didn't have more joy. And so he saw a passing angel and asked for an audience with Christ. And told Christ that he wanted his old position back. But his heart hadn't changed. But his, and, and she goes on to describe that. That, the, that he still remained rebellious. His heart hadn't changed. Uh, the love had not resumed to be the primary motivator of his life. And therefore he couldn't be taken back. There was nothing more that could be done for him. Because he had permanently... He was, in other words, he wasn't repentant of the actual sin. He was unhappy with the consequences of the sin. You see this in sinners all the time. Uh, I see uh, people with alcohol and drug problems that uh, are in, are, are, have liver failure or lung failure. And they're unhappy with their liver failure or lung failure, and they want a new liver so they can go out and drink more. Okay, That is not repentance. They're sorry for the consequence, but not the, the evil itself. All right, so... Um, Second paragraph, Monday's lesson, says, uh, Satan's attack concerns two issues, death and the knowledge of good and evil. While God clearly and emphatically stated that their death would be certain, Satan said that, said on the contrary, they wouldn't die, stating that humans were immortal. While God forbade Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, Satan encouraged them to eat the fruit because in eating it they would be like God. Well, if they were immortal, why did they need a tree of life in the garden before they sinned? If they were immortal, think that through. Satan, in my view, did not suggest that they were immortal. Now, this theory of human immortality has come from his first lie. It's traced down through the fallen human race, and much people, you can trace it back to this, you will not surely die. But... I don't believe Satan was suggesting that they were immortal at this point. 
what he said was, and you can read the actual text, Genesis 3, 4, and 5, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows in the day you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good for evil. That's what the scripture actually says. He didn't say you will not surely die because you're immortal. He said you will not surely die, which I think he's saying is, you will not surely die from eating the fruit. The attack upon Adam and Eve was to get them to distrust God. Thus the attack had to undermine their confidence and trust in God to get them to believe lies about God. And Satan's suggesting that disobeying God is not harmful. It doesn't inherently cause harm. You can disobey him and you will not surely die. It doesn't injure you. He's not saying to them, you cannot die. But you will not die from disobedience to God. This introduced a subtle lie. It was like a little little seed. It was it was a little seed lie. Uh, in psychiatry, we sometimes do things in therapy that we know are like we call them psychological depth, depth charges. Okay, you drop a little idea that you know is going to explode in their head sometime later. That's true. We all do it to some degree or another. But the idea, some people, you need to drop that, and it, and it percolates in their unconscious mind, and then it explodes later. Okay, This here is one of those. After they sinned, think about the process now. They sinned, and did they take the fruit, and did they die right then? So they're thinking, wait, God, God told us if we eat of this, we'll die. But, but we haven't died so what does that mean? Did they know what death was? I don't know if they understood the concept or not. We're not told. We have to assume that, it, that the word had meaning of some value or they wouldn't have been told it. So they had to have some understanding of what that meant. Or else it would be like saying, in the day you eat, you will... <laughs> okay? I mean, it had to have some meaning for them. Or there's no point in saying it. So... Um, did his angels have the concept of death? I would say the same thing. They had to have some concept of it or some idea of it or else it would be meaningless. It would just be noise. So, but, but the point, the, the death charge, oh no. If God told us we're going to die but we haven't died from eating the fruit, then what does that mean? Maybe Satan was right. Maybe God isn't trustworthy. Or... If we're going to die, and it didn't happen from the act, it'll happen from God. God will have to kill us. Oh no, it means that God will kill us, execute them, terminate them, use his power to punish them for death. And do you understand that idea is foundational to all humanity? Every pagan religion believes it. And essentially all of Christianity believes it. God in righteousness will kill sinners. In Adventist church, this is bedrock theology. Bedrock. I I can't tell you this is one of the core things that most of the theology professors that disagree with what we teach disagree on. They are adamant that after the great white throne judgment, God will use his power to inflict torture and death upon people. It is justice, they say. That's what they believe. Where did that lie come from? It came from right here. You won't die. You won't die from sin. No. Of course an all-powerful God can kill you. Didn't say he couldn't kill you. I just said you wouldn't die from sin. But if you're taught your whole life, like we've been taught with the church, that at the end God is going to do that, when you reach in the great controversy, I've given this to you before, where Sister White says that Satan will suffer a little longer. And I've explained it to you multiple times. <laughs> the other people that read that mm-hmm. know what we know, or believe like we believe, they're going to believe that God, because they don't read it. But she doesn't say that. She doesn't say that God will torture them. She doesn't say God will perform a miracle. She says that he will suffer longer. That's a passive. When we're taught, it's like, oh, he's going to burn longer than... Because they don't study scripture. Let me give you some scripture. The wages of sin is eternal life, but God will kill you for it. No. No. But that's what they read. Sin won't harm. God kills you for it. Or keep you artificially alive so you can be tortured throughout eternity because you chose not to love him. James chapter 1, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth life, but God will kill you for it. No, sin when full grown brings forth 
death. Death comes from Galatians 6, 8. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap eternal life. Eternal life. No, destruction is what it says, right? The Bible's very clear on this. Because when you have a design law understanding of reality, you cannot have health in violations of the laws of health. You cannot have life out of harmony with the very laws that God built life to operate upon. We are dying. We're dead in trespasses and we have a terminal condition. Without remedy, we die eternally. With remedy, we live eternally. And the remedy is a gift. So the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So what was the cause of the sin condition? Eating the fruit or believing the lies which changed them and led to the act of eating the fruit? Well, this is out of Review and Herald, January 5, 1886. This is one person's view on it. You can agree or disagree. It says, Eve believed the words of Satan and the belief of that falsehood in regards to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and husband. They were changed from good and obedient children to transgressors. Remember, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. If you believe a lie that your spouse is cheating, even though they're not, but you believe they are, there's something inside of you change. And what happens? I'm fearful now. I'm fearful of this person I don't trust anymore and afraid I'm going to get hurt by them. So lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I have to protect myself because you don't have my back anymore. You're cheating. And fear and selfishness result in acts of sin, which are damaging to mind, character, body, relationships, a terminal condition. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned or believed the lies, they broke the circle of love and trust and infected themselves with fear and selfishness, and the whole cascade of pain and suffering came. Tuesday's lesson. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid. Why? They were afraid. Where did the fear come from? But where did it come from? The lack of trust in Who did it come from? It was inherent in the sin. They felt fear because they changed themselves. Lies believed, break the circle of love and trust, resulting in Fear and selfishness. And was fear and selfishness the only thing they experienced new, or did they also have guilt and shame? And where did the guilt and the shame come from, or who did it come from? The point being is, when God approached him in the garden and th- said, Where are I? I hid because I was afraid, because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? What's the implication of the question? What's the, what's the question designed to, to cause Adam to do? Where did you come from that information? Where did you become aware of that? Where's that coming from? Is it coming from me, Adam? Adam, am I pointing out any deficiencies? Am I condemning you, Adam? Understand, the condemnation does not come from God. It comes from sin itself. Sin causes fear, guilt, and shame. And causes us to pull away from people because we don't believe that anyone could love us if they knew our sin. And so we put on our face masks, our, our, our facades, our social acceptable presentations. We don't come to church and say, hey, I'm, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. We go to the A meeting where we know we'll be, hey, welcome, Joe. We don't come to church and say that Even though that's what's supposed to happen with mature Christians, we confess our sins one to another, not for the purpose of absolution, but for the purpose of experiencing what you experience at 12 Steps, which is, we love you, Joe, and we are here to support you to get victory over the sin. And some people have suggested this is the point at which the subconscious began, that now we're hiding even from our own selves what we really are. We put it away somewhere and lock the door and don't visit. And so when Christ comes back, the subconscious wall will be removed. All of that will come flooding back into the consciousness of the person. 
So I wouldn't use those terms. <laughs> I would use the terms where denial came in, not subconscious, where denial came in, and repression and suppression. But um, the, the subconscious to me uh, doesn't have to be denial, repression, or suppression. Um, it, it can be just things that we're not consciously thinking about at that moment. So, yes? So, Tim, that intense fear and anxiety that Adam and Eve felt, could that cause genetic changes that then were passed on to their children? Is that how that made its way into human nature? Epigenetic changes, I believe, yes. Epigenetic changes were made. There's no question. And then, and then we're going to get to the, the nature thing in Thursday's lesson. Uh, and then an enemy had access. And all nature grows under the weight of sin. And all types of mutations began happening in the species and the, and the planet after, after sin that weren't there before as well. And I think the access to the tree of life, its primary function, understand, life does not come from a tree. Any more than we understand that when you eat food, food we have today, it gives nutrition to your body, which gives you life. You get actually life from those trees. Not eternal life, but physical life you get from nutrition. But life does not actually come from the plants. The life comes from God, who made the plants. Okay, And eternal life did not come from that tree either. Eternal life came from God, but he used the tree, I think, for a function, which was to be the type of nutrition that prevented any type of physiological decay, so they would not age. They would not have any mutations. It would prevent all of those things. But without it, the natural order of things, understand the second law of thermodynamics, one of the design laws, in order for things not to decay, what's required? Energy input that keeps things in order. But they cut themselves off from infinite love, infinite energy, and so things began to decay. So, yeah. What is revealed here, then, if you understand this process, they had guilt, they had shame, they had fear, they ran and hid before God said anything to them. Sin changes the sinner. It's inherent in the, in the action itself. Just like any breaches of the laws of health have negative consequences on the person who does them. Same thing. So this is the dividing line between the truth about who God is and how he runs his government and his laws and the lies that Satan has been telling from the very beginning, even in heaven. Satan alleges that sin is uh, not a breach of design law, but simply breaking arbitrary rules that someone who has power is exerting over others. And therefore, if you break those rules, the one in power will punish. Sin has to be punished. This is uh, Desire of Ages 761. I encourage you to read this whole chapter. This is the chapter, It is Finished. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. From the opening of the controversy, his attack was on God's law and government, which goes back to the type of being God is, his character and his methods. And then listen to this. This is the opening. Great Controversy 582. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. It started over what? A question over God's law. Over what kind of law? Well, if you sin, then you have to be punished. That's human, imposed. That's imperial. That's what a created being can do. We can make up rules and enforce by power. We are not creators. We don't build space, time, energy, life, and matter. We can't establish laws of gravity and the laws of physics. God can. His laws are design laws. But they've started over an allegation that his laws are just rules that require punishment. And what's it say? The great, last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Be- battle between the laws of men, imposed rules, precepts of Jehovah, how reality works. That's what we're entering right now. This is what it's upon. The core life in the beginning... And sadly, almost the entire world accepts Satan's view of it. And almost all Christianity teaches Satan's view of it. And that's why the three angels' message is the eternal gospel. Eternal. Eternal. Eternity past as well as eternity future is good news. God's government does not run like Rome. 
It's not a Caesar that makes rules and sends his, uh, his disobedient children into the arena to be killed. That's not how God runs his universe. It's the eternal good news. He never did and he never will. But instead, we have taken the three angels' message and we have taken it to the world through imperial law. He's got a rule. He made it up at the end of creation week. And if you don't worship on that day, he will kill you. And so we're presenting doctrinal truths that are true. The Seventh-day Sabbath is a true truth. Through the lens of an imperial God who makes up rules and will kill you for it. So we're still presenting Satan's view of God. And this is why Christ hasn't come, because he's waiting for a people to rise up and give the final message of mercy to the world. And Ellen White says in Christ's opposite lessons 4.11, that the final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's return is the truth about his character of love. Love cannot be commanded, coerced, compelled. You can't get love, friendship, loyalty, trust, and devotion by threatening to kill the people who don't give it to you. You can't get it. You only get more rebellion. Do you see? Oh, let's read, read this paragraph, third paragraph. In fact, this is uh, God calling Adam, where are you, Adam, and who told you you're naked? This, this scenario, hiding before God. In fact, the whole scenario reflects the idea of the investigative judgment, which begins with the judge who interrogates the culprit in order to prepare him for the sentence. Did you make that up, or is that in? It's in the quarterly. <laughs> It's in the quarterly. And do you know how when I read this, my heart, I almost just had to cry. Yeah. How sad. That sounds like one of your facetious uh, paraphrases. How sad. It It just breaks my heart that this stuff is infecting the materials of the people who've been blessed with the great controversy perspective over God's character to take an eternal message to the world. Judge and interrogate. Yeah, can you read that? It's awful. The whole scenario, the scenario of God calling Adam, Adam, where are you? I hid because I was naked. Uh, who told you you were naked? This scenario is, what, is what's being referred to. This whole scenario reflects the idea of the investigative judgment which begins with the judge who interrogates the culprit in order to prepare him for the sentence. Do you understand that this is framed in which law model? This, this language comes out of imposed law model. Human law model, yes. So, Tim, do you think at that point in time when Satan told that lie, he knew that mankind would go on to develop all society, all governance structures around this rule of law idea? Because it's, it's just totally reinforced the lie um, through all history. I think he knew that that was going to happen. I don't know that he had foreknowledge. Um, but he's intelligent enough, I think, to understand potential consequences and to anticipate the possibility. Any strategist can strategize and see these are, are possible outcomes. I think he could have conceived the possibility. I, I wouldn't give him any capacity to know with certainty that it would turn this way, but I think he could have strategized that these things could happen, that this view of law will cause people to distrust God. Well, we all live in it, and that's what makes it so hard to see the truth. Right. It's the highest form of order in uh, fallen beings can get. And this is why the beast system sets up in the end. Because without the Holy Spirit working in the heart, okay, when you have the Holy Spirit in the heart, you get the fruits of the Spirit. And what's the last fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Self you gain enkratia, and within, krat, autocrat, democrat, authority over oneself that you govern yourself in harmony with the laws of love and truth. So you become a healthy, safe person to live next door to because you care about God and you care about others and you don't exploit and abuse. So you have a safe community when people have that. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is being withdrawn because people harden their heart, do we get more peace? Do we get more order? Or do we get more chaos, chaos. and rebellion and mobs and violence and all kinds of things? And so... Do people, even without God, want to experience fear, or do they want to feel safe and secure? They want to feel safe and secure. And if, if they don't have God transforming hearts to give loving 
uh, loving attitudes, man, love casts out fear. So we have love in our hearts so we don't live in fear. If we, if we don't have that because we're rejecting the Holy Spirit, where will we turn for safety and security? Power and authority. We will establish governments to use power and authority with ever greater coercive power over people to bring justice, to bring order. And we will lose more and more autonomies and freedoms. Because we must stop violence. We must stop unjust wars. We must stop this. We must stop that. We must stop all this stuff. Someone should pass a law. And so, yeah, someone should pass a law. So the highest order in a community that, that fallen beings can make is imperial law. We make up laws and we enforce them on people. And, and the world will beg for this. Social credit. All types of them. When we embrace God's design law, though, view of what happened in the garden, we understand that uh, there was nothing judicial going on here. It was a loving father, creator, savior who was ac- ac- who had already accurately diagnosed the problem, what's wrong, who understands that this is a terminal condition, who understands his beautiful child is going to die without remedy, but the remedy requires the cooperation of the child. I can't heal and fix the inmost secret recesses of the heart and mind without their willing and trusting participation. Yes, God has the power because he's a divine, infinite, omnipotent being to use power to go right into your heart and mind and overwrite every sinful propensity and put in a perfect data set. But if he did that, would you still be you? No, at best you would simply be a, a new being like Adam and Eve was in Eden who were sinless but still hadn't weighed the issues and made their decision yet. That's the best he can do. But you get erased. You get destroyed. You're gone. Your personality, individuality is gone. The only way to save an individual is through their willing, understanding, cooperative participation with God. We have to be one to trust. And so he, that first requires we understand we have a problem. So he has the interaction to bring Adam to conviction that there's something wrong. And then he promises them a savior, a solution, who will come and crush the serpent's head and provide salvation. Don't you think that's one of the reasons why people um, are afraid of God, too, is they are afraid that God will overwrite them and change them to a person that they don't even recognize that's not... Yes. Yes, because of the imperial law model and the authoritarian view, yes. I'm going to skip Wednesday. It was about judgment. We've gone over judgment before. Um, we're going to go to, to, to Thursday and try to close out with, the, with some of the issues in Thursday's lesson. Um, and Thursday's lesson is about uh, the consequences or what they call the curses. It also talks about the judgment, God's judgment. Uh, now I have to read something in Thursday's lesson. Yes, uh, Wednesday. has got to go to Wednesday. It says in Wednesday's lesson, um, we reach here a kind of reversal of creation. While creation led to life, the appreciation of the good and the blessings, listen to this carefully, judgment leads to death, evil, and curses. Can harmonize that with the Get your mind around that. Judgment leads to death, evil, and curses. Is that true? No. No, I don't have time to go through the four judgments and what the four judgments of God actually are. They're all different and they all have different purposes and the different types of biblical judgment. But that judgment right there is judicial that's being described. Authoritarian, inflicting consequence for the purpose of but this is not what the Bible teaches. We've already gone over it. Does, does death come from God's judgment or death come from sin? Does evil come from God's judgment? If God didn't judge it, then it wouldn't be evil. It's only evil because he judges it and that makes it evil. Or when he judges it, it causes the evil. Or the curses. Are the curses God's judgment or do they also come from sin? Okay? It is very corrupt what's being taught. It makes God responsible, God the source of evil, pain, suffering, and death. Understand reality. God is the source of life. God is the source of truth. God is the source of love. God is the source of everything that's good for us. He is not the source of any pain, suffering, or evil, or harm to us. When I say pain, I should clarify. He is the source of discipline that can be painful, but it's not harmful. And once there's brokenness, there's no pain-free options. So the healing will have some pain in it. So, so he's not the source. The sin is the source, but the healing solution can be painful. So 
I just have to say that. And then it talks about the curses, which are, according to the lesson, part of God's judgment, which means God's inflicting. And then it talks about the, the uh, curse upon the serpent, the, uh, the curse of, on childbearing, husbands ruling over wives, and the curse on the ground. And the imperialists, those that view God's law as human law, always point to these. I can't tell you how many people I've had this discussion with. And they always, but you see, God is punishing right there. He's putting punishment on them right there. Childbearing. What's going on with that? Painful. Painful. <laughs> yes, it is, because, it's a, because God decided to use this as an object lesson. If we say it's not simply a consequence of the change in human physiology, but it's something God actively imposed, then it would be a therapeutic intervention, not a punishment for sin, if we want to say that. Okay? And I'm okay. God makes therapeutic interventions. What's the object lesson? It's very straightforward. That in a sinful world in which we live, love still works to bring forth new life. But now, that's a painful struggle until delivery. And at delivery, there is joy. This is the metaphor of both rebirth and the ultimate delivery from sin. The seeds of truth in a sinful world are still taking root in hearts and minds to bring forth new Christian life in a rebirth. But that is a labor and a struggle against the old self until we're reborn. And then there's joy. And then we continue to struggle in this world and labor against the forces of evil until the second coming and ultimate delivery. But love, and then women who have given birth, believe it or not, it's hard to believe, often have a second child. (laughs) Isn't it true? And why in the world would they do that? I see some women going, I have no idea. (laughs) But why would they do that? Isn't it because of love? Isn't it because of love? And the joy that it brings. And the joy set before. It's a powerful object lesson and a teaching tool, if we understand it. What about the ground being cursed? What does it mean? For your sake. For your sake. Yep. Well, here is a uh, quotation, Second Selected Messages, page 288. And you should keep in mind Romans chapter 8 when Paul says, All nature groans under the weight of sin, waiting for the day of deliverance. Christ never planted the seeds of death in the system. Wait. Death comes from God's judgment we just read in the lesson. Oh, no, it doesn't. Uh, Christ never planted the seeds of death in the system. Satan planted these seeds when he tempted Adam to eat the tree of knowledge, uh, which meant disobedience to God. Not one noxious plant was placed in the Lord's great garden. But after Adam and Eve sinned, poisonous herbs sprang up. In the parable of the sower, the question was asked to the master, did you not sow good seed in the field from where all the tares or the weeds come from? The master answered, an enemy has done this. All tares are sown by the evil one. Every noxious herb is of his sowing, and by his ingenious methods of amalgamation, he has corrupted the earth with his tears. So, I have to reject some of the things. So the ground became harder because sin was now going on. I had another quote, but we're out of time, so let's see. But the tree of life. <laughs> what about the tree of life? I want to know why it's why was it removed from the earth and taken to heaven? Yes. The whole Garden of Eden was. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but it wasn't instant. It was just before the flood. It remained on the earth until the time of the flood. If you read in Genesis, there were angels that barred the way to the tree of life. It was a witness to all. And think that through, guys. Think through how the rebellious world hardened against the Lord. And they actually had the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. And angels yes. with flaming swords or some type of bear looked like flames. They could go and see it. I mean, can we imagine that? Yes, and so uh, it was taken to reduce sin and allow the plan of salvation to go forward. What would happen if the tree of life was on earth today? Would the meek, gentle, kind people have control of it? Who would have control of it? And my view is the tree of life would do, would be prevent aging. You would have perfect physical health. It would not prevent beheadings. It would not prevent bullet wounds. It would not prevent um, a nuclear weapons vaporizing the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It wouldn't prevent any of that. It would only prevent aging. So you could have immortal sinners being they wouldn't decay and die from sin anymore because they are sustaining their physiology with a perfect nutrient. 
That's all, in my view. It wouldn't have prevented Cain from smashing Abel's head with a rock or whatever he did. Those things would have still happened. So evil and sin would have prevented. And the most evil, corrupt people with the most powerful armies would have controlled. And just think that through. So the tree of life wasn't in heaven before? No, it was, it was, on, this, it was on this earth, yeah. All right, let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, and we thank you so much for your mercies, and we thank you so much for what you've done through Jesus. And we ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten us, transform us, and and may we be powerful witnesses this time for your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.